Does your mom know you have a podcast? Uh, probably. Well, you know what? If she does, I do. I post it. I usually share it to my personal Facebook page, even though you know nobody reads it, nobody listens to it from there. Um, I, I would say if she does, it's because of that. But I guarantee you, she's not a listener. I figure. I figured out the same thing. I share mine from the my personal Facebook every once in a while. But I found out last night that my mom didn't know that I had a podcast. Um, I was chaperoning tenth graders to the art museum in Minneapolis this week. And uh, one of the kids told my son, who was in our group, that uh, your dad has a really nice voice. He probably has a podcast. And I thought that was a, that was a nice compliment from a 15-year-old. And B, really strange, because is that the automatic thing now? If you have a nice voice, you automatically leap to podcast? I think so. I mean... Uh, used to be right. You have the voice for radio, which was kind of a compliment, but also kind of meant you didn't have the face for TV. I have the face for radio for sure. Yeah. Um, but we also had a podcast before it was cool to have a podcast. I know way before we had a, before it was cool. This is podcast 194. So your mom not knowing is like 12, <laughs> 11 years of her being in the dark. I'm pretty sure I've recorded podcasts, multiple podcasts in her house, not in her basement, because the upper rooms are more uh, have better uh, internet connection, but yeah, uh, it would be the quintessential podcast would be to record in my mom's basement, though. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. We're the largest division with some of the smallest schools, and I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, has been here since 1999. And uh, Keith, I was trying to figure out what would be the highest position I could have ever been drafted in anything, and I would have to think about the 2300th round of the baseball draft in 1990 is probably where I would peek out. How about you? How about the, you, know, you get like a second rounder in Minneapolis choir singers, right? Like a, like a day two pick. Uh, you'd probably go 1-1 one, one overall of people who know random things about Division three sports. <laughs> it's always good to be the best in the world at something, even if the something is a weird niche. Well, once upon a time, we thought the top story for this podcast would be the upcoming NFL draft. And then... Uh, uh, Mount Union quarterbacks started transferring, and then someone who coached in the past two Stag Bowls was suspended. A school closed. Uh, another school was uh, admitted to the NAIA. So uh, here we are, Keith. Happy April. Yeah, it's been a bit more newsy than your typical off-season month, and it starts right at the top with Luke Porman, the Mount Union quarterback, saying he plans to transfer from the number one team in the country to number two, ostensibly to start and to try to get Mary Harden-Baylor back to the national championship game, which as you'll recall, is in Texas the next two seasons. Then shortly after, we find out the only coach that program has ever known is being suspended for the first three games. So UMHB will be squarely in the spotlight from jump in 2018. Yeah, we know nothing about what Pete Frettenberg did, um, and we've been trying to find that out uh, even off the record. It's kind of fruitless to speculate. The NCAA could potentially rule on this before the season even starts if the school and the NCAA agree with the findings. I don't think it affects their national championship chances much, and we'll all get to know Larry Harmon a bit while Coach Fredenberg's reputation takes a hit, but ultimately it might be a blip, if not a testament to what kind of program UMHB has built. 
I don't mean that to let them off the hook for violations, but to say that the program at this point is bigger than one man, even its leader and its most important man, and should be able to function for three games without him. These aren't easy games, Albright, Saul Ross State, and Texas Lutheran all on the road, but I would expect UMHB to be UMHB. Oh, that's interesting. He gets to save some uh, air travel. Um, but anyway, right. First, de- first offense, it's self-reported, means it's unlikely to require more of a punishment than what the school has already imposed. Keith mentioned the three-game suspension. He's also uh, has three months of unpaid leave. But, you know, Keith, we know Fredenberg has been a no-nonsense guy when it comes to players violating team rules. And it seems in this action, it's really no different when it comes to himself. This is actually a pretty harsh self-imposed punishment. And uh, those are typically done in order to make the NCAA process easier. When Fredenberg does return to the sidelines, of course, he'll have a new quarterback to play with, and that's Luke Porman. Uh, Porman, the number one quarterback in 2016 as a freshman at Mount Union, then number two this past season, starting the Frostburg State game. That was a national quarterfinal and performing well. But uh, thinking he won't get another chance to play for the Purple Raiders, he decided to transfer, and he'll end up at Mary Harden Baylor in the fall. I listened to the half-hour interview that Luke did with In the Huddle, and if you're a Crusaders or Purple Raiders fan, you'll want to check that out. Uh, But for everyone else, to boil it down, I'd say the main thing that came across in the interview is the humanity of the decision. Of course, it's primarily a football decision, no matter what anyone tells you. And the goal is is to win a national championship, which means the crew would have to go through the Purple Raiders at some point, should they get that far. But you're also talking about a kid leaving behind his best friends and his girlfriend at college to wade into a new situation. And I found that relatable. Frank Rossi in the interview talks about when he thought about transferring from Union after two years. I thought about leaving Randolph-Macon when I was a sophomore. But actually, someone taking that leap of faith, and that's not a word I choose by accident, is a big thing. It's a big decision. And in this case, it comes with great expectations. But it also sets up what could be an epic rematch this season or next, featuring the quarterback from Florida that Mountain Union cast its lot with against one it nearly did. So from an outsider standpoint, this sets up to be really interesting. Inside, though, it's still a kid doing what he hopes is best for him. And as you might expect, that's what your friends, if they're really your friends, would want for you. So in a strange way, it seems like Mount Union players are really happy for Luke Porman. And if I had to guess, though, you know, deep down, the competitiveness between the two programs just went up another notch. Yeah, Luke Porman definitely has fans among the uh, current Mount Union players, a lot of supporters, I think maybe even guys who might prefer to see him start. Um, of course, he wasn't the only quarterback who transferred. Dom Davis, who started the majority of the 2016 season for the Purple Raiders, ended up third in the depth chart last season. He transferred out as well. He was with Division II Walsh this spring. And if you don't know who the number one is, well, you haven't been paying attention. D'Angelo Fulford's legal trouble has yet to be resolved in Florida, and there isn't anything new to report on that at this point. And I hope you enjoy your dinner of crow. I guess it's best tasted law. They did win a championship with Fulford this past year, and uh, just goes to show you what a recruiting class that was for quarterbacks. If you have three quarterbacks who uh, who were all, you know, everyone, coaches always say, oh, we have two guys who could start. Well, th- these guys really do have th- possibly three who could be starters next season. And definitely an upgrade at quarterback for Mary Harden Baylor uh, this upcoming season if uh, Porman presumably gets to start and plays up to his potential. Uh, coming up uh, within a, about a week from when this podcast drops, of course, the NFL draft will start. There are years in which we don't have a lot of confidence, perhaps, that a, a Division Three player will be drafted. This year, there are a couple of guys who are getting a lot of notice. Uh, we'll be talking with Matthew Gono, the guard, well, tackle from Wesley, uh, potential guard in the NFL. 
Uh, we'll talk to him about his chances and his uh, progress and some of the process that uh, a young man goes through when you're being courted or being evaluated for the NFL draft. But uh, you know, there's also been a lot of talk about uh, Brandon Shedd, the wide receiver from Hobart, uh, Michael Joseph, the cornerback from Dubuque. Um, I'm not sure all of these guys get drafted. It's been a long time since we've had more than one and even longer since we've had more than two guys drafted in a year. In fact, I don't remember having more than two guys drafted in a year, but it does look like we're going to have a, a lot of things to pay attention to next week. Yeah, and, and I think you get to a point, you know, sixth, seventh round where it's nice to be drafted and wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're uh, at, at that point, it's almost better to be a, a priority free agent because um, you get to choose the situation that you're in. And when you're on the roster bubble like that, fit um, your playing style and, and quite honestly, being wanted is uh, is super important. Um, obviously, if you're drafted, you're wanted, but but you don't get to choose where you end up. So um, I, I think for any of these guys, the di- if, there, if there's any disappointment about not being taken in day three, that goes away really quickly because your agent tells you, hey, look, these four teams – are interested in us and we get to pick the best fit yeah absolutely we will have more coverage on uh, draft prospects coming up in a couple of days we'll have a piece from adam turr which uh, talks to some of the top guys and we'll also have a rundown of list of players who might potentially be those priority free agents or might get training camp invites Keith, another big piece of news was that uh, rules changes were approved for the upcoming season. Uh, I think the one that most people are talking about is the one that uh, changes the kickoff rule that now the receiving team can fair catch a kickoff inside the 25-yard line, anywhere inside the 25, and have it result in a touchback, where, of course, as you remember now from the last several years, that ball gets placed at the 25 instead of the 20 like it used to be. It really seems like they just do not want players running into each other on kickoffs. I think that's the main takeaway and and anything you can do to reduce injuries, you know, they're going to do at this point, which gives us old timers. You know, we can say, oh, we played football when you used to bang into each other on on kickoffs. But um, I think strategically that's kind of interesting because remember in D3, it's hard enough to find a a strong legged kicker who can, um, you know, stretch the field for you as far as making field goals. Now you, you, you want a guy who can reach the goal line, right? Um, well, now it doesn't. I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean that's a good question, right? I don't expect anybody to fair catch the ball at the twenty yard line unless it's such a high kick that uh, you know that 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 makes sense. I would suspect that you probably still, from a strategic standpoint, still want to kick the ball deep enough to get it inside the five or ten yard line now with these new rules and try to um, encourage returners to take it out and then you know make them pay for doing so. Sure, and, and it puts you in a, as a returner, you know, you're in a weird spot, maybe around, um, you know, the 15 where you have to make the decision, can I get 10 yards, more than 10 yards from here, or should we just take it uh, and take it at the 25? Certainly, uh, yeah, interesting, and, and maybe gives teams some options, some special teams coaches, some options to, to play around with. Uh, there's another change uh, with regards to blocking. The offense won't be allowed to block below the waist when the block occurs more than five yards beyond the line of scrimmage. And other than interior linemen, all blocks below the waist must be from the front. That's, I think mostly um, basically means you eliminate, I guess you don't eliminate crackbacks, but you you can only do them right on the, on the shoulder. Nobody wants to be hit um, basically in the knees from behind. You don't see it coming. You can't brace for it. Mm-hmm. it it's pretty dangerous. But also I find that one maybe kind of tough to enforce 
when you're, um, you know, at least when you're on offensive linemen pulling, pulling guards, um, when the block occurs beyond five yards beyond the line of scrimmage, it's really only going to affect, um, I would say, uh, you know, balls caught way downfield and, and downfield blocks. But in, in those cases, those blocks are usually, um, you know, around the shoulder pads anyway. So uh, my guess is it's just to eliminate anybody getting um, their, their knees taken out from behind. There were also a couple of other changes just to keep the game moving. Uh, after a touchdown, they will set the play clock at 40 seconds to expedite the uh, extra point try, and similarly after a kickoff. Uh, we had another piece of news just uh, this week in which Thomas Moore College was admitted to the NAIA for 2019, the fall of 2019, 2019-2020 academic year. Keith, it's not an automatic that they'll go, but you know we've been talking about this for a while. They don't have a conference home after they were essentially asked to leave the president's athletic conference following this past season or this current academic year it seems unlikely that they're going to find a home in division three and this is basically their backup plan in my opinion yeah thomas moore has always been sort of a geographic outlier although the the part of kentucky that they're in is just over the river from ohio so they could i mean there are a couple of ohio-based conferences that might be geographically even uh, better for them than the the pack, but clearly they've uh, they've they've looked at their options in, in Division three and they don't have good options. I, I think it's kind of I guess unfortunate is probably the best way to put it because even though they were a bit of an odd fit in in the pack, they um, they were competitive there. They gave um, you know football wise for a long time that was Washington Jefferson just dominated that conference and and that gave. Um, you know, a second or some years, a third, third real competitive team in the conference. And I feel like over the past few years, all the weird independents and, and teams that basically were stuck without a conference home, uh, you know, there was the movement with the SAA and the SCAC and uh, a bunch of things that, that left teams without homes. And then everybody found a home and then this happened. And it seems like every time we get to a point from our standpoint nationally where we're like, okay, everybody's in a conference and all the conferences make sense, uh, something happens. I still like the three-way trade. And I think we even mentioned this on a previous podcast, the thought of Wilmington going back to the HCAC and Thomas Moore taking that spot in the OAC. But of course, any conference movement is difficult and a, a three-way trade in conferences is uh, you know, I'm sure that would be really difficult to set up, but I, that's still the thing that makes sense to me. Thomas Moore fits in the OAC, and Wilmington. Wait, what, what's the what's the third way? The third trade? Well, I, it's third. Thomas Moore coming out of independent, I guess. So there's nobody who has to leave the HCAC in order for this to happen. But you have to oh. you have to move I, multiple times. I thought you were sending an HCAC team to the to the pack, which oh, that'd be cool. Let's see. Well. No, uh, that's a that's a rabbit hole we could go down, and at uh, already fifteen minutes or so into the podcast, maybe we should. Right. But uh. well, that's the kind of thing that fascinates you and me <laughs> and like five of our listeners. Players from Mount Ida are scrambling to find places to play, or f for that matter, just attend school in the, the fall of 2018. Uh, Mount Ida announced somewhat suddenly, I, in my opinion, that they were be that they would be closing at the end of this academic year. So. Mount Ida students get automatic uh, acceptance at uh, UMass Dartmouth, which was one of the smaller of the UMass system campuses in Division Three. Certainly, could see a lot of Mount Ida players going there and bolstering them. But in all honesty, Keith, uh, you know, I I never like to see a Division Three football program go away and opportunities for Division Three football players to go away. So this is a really sad story. Sure, and, and we'll we'll talk about and you can 
hear it later in the podcast in uh, in Rob Cushman's voice about trying to save football at Occidental and and how difficult that effort is to to keep a football program going. Look, it's expensive. It's um, you know it's already hard enough to run a small college as it is because you're dependent on uh, not only a steady stream of new students every year, but um, but that those, those tuition dollars sometimes go to things as mundane as you know heating bills. So it, it's uh, it, it's tough, and uh, you know we've seen several teams teeter on the brink and, and, and survive, and then we've seen some uh, fold up shop. And in, in this in the case of Mount Ida. You know, these are slots that I would say they're 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 probably not coming back. But in uh, in New England, there have been a few new programs open up over the uh, over the past couple of years and one coming this fall. So uh, for the for the football playing public, you know, it may not be a, a big net effect. But for those people who played at Mount Ida and who helped get that program off the ground, it's it's certainly sad to see it go. Keith mentioned Rob Cushman. In the course of this podcast, we'll be talking with Matthew Gono from Wesley. We'll talk with John Troxell, the head coach at Franklin and Marshall, and Rob Cushman, the head coach at Occidental. And I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by Nobody. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment, who can influence decisions to replace turf, who can influence decisions to build stadiums. We'll be talking about that in this podcast. You could reach those people by sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here. But think about it. Drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com because you are missing out on this opportunity. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Matthew Gono, a senior for Wesley who has finished an All-American career, now working his way towards a career or a shot at a career in the National Football League. First of all, thanks for making time to join me on a, on a Saturday in April. It doesn't look much like a Saturday in April here in Dover, but I do appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no problem. It's been kind of a whirlwind off-season for you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, January in Pasadena... Um, the snowiest April day in decades in Minneapolis, lots of other trips, uh, coming up. What's it been like as you kind of transition from, you know, college athlete to trying to get to the point where you could get drafted or at least get a shot in the NFL? Um, it's been tiring trying to balance all, all the flights, all the private workouts with, you know, schoolwork. I'm still in the semester trying to finish up, you know, my, my last semester of college, so, just trying to balance all of those things, but it's been, you know, it's a good experience. So I'm just trying to, you know, continue to work to finish college and do my best going towards the end of April. Yeah, I think a lot of guys who are in your position uh, end up taking this semester off, the spring semester of this year. But uh, I, I'm happy as a, you know, a, a D3 lifer to hear you being focused also on graduation. Yeah, um, at the NFLPA game, you know, they actually talked a lot to us about finishing school and you know the importance of that not just football football you know football is important but your degree is what you came here for primarily so that's what I'm trying to do both of those. I think we talk a lot with wide receivers and other guys for whom speed is you know one of the major measurables at that position and then they're going off to like work in a speed camp with a specialist in like Phoenix or San Diego or something like that. What is your workout regimen like now and who are you who are you training with? Uh, I've been training. I've been training at home, a facility by my house in Jersey. Um, 
It's called Service Athletics. I've been training there. My agent found uh, a trainer for me. So just working on a lot of explosion, uh, a lot of bench press, um, a lot of explosive movements. And for speed, I've been working here at college with the track coach. So that's what I've been doing, uh, practicing my 40, my shuttle, L drill, everything with uh, the track coach up here. You had a pro day here uh, a few weeks back. Uh, I understand representatives of 17 NFL teams were here to see you work out. What were the, what were the first of all, I guess, the numerical type of results and what kind of feedback did you get from people? Uh, for, well, for the bench press, I, I got 26 reps. Um, some of them were discounted, I guess, because, you know, I didn't, of locking out. They wanted me to lock my arms out more, so... I got 26 reps for that, you know, which they said was in the ballpark. Uh, the coaches, you know, they, they like that. The broad jump, I jumped 9-10, which is, you know, they told me that was one of the best broad jumps for someone my size in decades. So they were really impressed with that. I was I was pleased with that. Um, the 40, I ran a 5-1, and, you know, that was that was in the cold. It was a windy day. There was snow on the ground. So I was relatively, you know, pleased with the results that day. I think the coaches were as well. For your size, and I'm I'm gonna ballpark you right now at like six four three something. What does it actually measure at? Um, six four three nineteen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a does that and where does that kind of line you up in terms of where you might project out in the NFL? Uh, I think I think they're um, I think they're looking at looking at me for for guard. Uh, I played guard and tackle in the NFLPA game. Um, I think I'm athletic enough to play tackle, or you know any 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 side of the ball. It doesn't really matter to me. But I think they're projecting me as guard right now. In that NFLPA game, you know, primarily Division One competition. What was the biggest difference you noticed between <clears throat> that and what you've been playing the last few years here? Um, the biggest difference, well, yeah, I think some there are some guys that are bigger, faster. Um, more explosive, some some people, but there's not, I noticed that there really wasn't that much of a difference. It was just depends on the individual getting adjusted to who you're playing against. Once I started uh, getting in the rhythm and getting adjusted to who I was playing against, I didn't really notice too much of a difference. Um, so I think I was able to go out there and execute, you know, just like I would here. Um, you and anybody else coming, uh, looking for pro prospects out of Wesley right now has a uh, a guy you can talk to who's uh, experienced it over the last couple of years and been through the process in Joe Callahan. What did what has he shared with you? What have you learned from him? You know that sort of thing. Um, Joe doesn't. I mean, Joe never really said too much. But I mean, what I learned from him is just to stay humble, keep your head down. You know, work hard. He doesn't. He doesn't flaunt too much. He doesn't say too much. And that's kind of how I approach things. I just. I don't have that much to say about, you know, everything that I'm doing. I just, I'm just working. That's it. So you've been to uh, Minneapolis to visit with the Vikings. I know you're traveling to Chicago and Detroit. I understand that those trips are not, you know, those are not, you're not going out there for workouts, right? You're going out yeah. there for, what, conversations, I guess? Mm -hmm. uh, when I went to Minnesota, there was a lot of meetings. I met with a GM, the head coach, the offensive coordinator, uh, O-line coach, assistant O-line coach, so a lot of meetings, a lot of mental things, um, a lot of football things, drawing up plays, learning, you know, learning their terms, their terminology, things things of that nature. So that's what that trip was for. Those, that's what those trips are for, basically.
when you're having those conversations or you're talking with scouts or whatever, you know, maybe you had the, a similar conversation when you're uh, looking for an agent, but what's the impression of you as a Division three student-athlete not having maybe gone through the rigors, so to speak, of playing against, you know, an SEC schedule or something week in and week out? You know, um, I get the... They don't know as much about me, I guess, you know, not coming from a bigger school. So I really have to make sure, you know, I'm on point, you know, with what I do on the field, uh, in the weight room. Uh, when I go there, I try to pay attention as much as I can and, you know, do my best to give them, you know, the feedback they're looking for so they realize I'm on, you know, I'm on par with everyone else. But they found you, and typically NFL scouts find everybody basically yeah. I don't know how that happens but it happens how did they come across you do you know no I'm not really sure I've just been I've just been here uh, I wasn't expecting any of this or anticipating any of this I've just been playing football you know that's what I, that's all I came here to do I wasn't thinking about any of this but they you know they ended up find, uh, finding me um, thankfully and I'm just you know I'm just as surprised sometimes as everyone else so I'm just enjoying. I'm just enjoying uh, this process. What's your typical day now? Is you got you know three or four weeks or whatever worth of classes left, and getting in your workouts, and not to mention all the the travel and the other meetings and such. My typical day uh, during the school week, just I go to class. Um, when I'm done with my last class, I go get a lift in. I go to the training room to get some treatment, um, or if I if I have a a flight coming up or something like that, I might have to skip class, notify the teachers, and, and you know, just do whatever whatever's on the agenda that day. I think I saw one of your teachers post on Twitter, a, uh, or did it, maybe it was uh, one of the coaches post on Twitter a response from a teacher that was happy to let you go, I guess, something I'm happy to see that you were, A, getting your opportunity to play, but B, that you were, of course, letting them know that you weren't going to be in class that particular day. Oh, yeah, I, didn't, I did not see that, but I think... It might have been Professor Edelin, who's one of my law professors. She's always she's usually excited, you know, about that stuff. She's a she's a big um, Eagles fan, so you know she's really excited about that. Me getting a chance to work out with the Eagles, so it was probably her. I think I'm not sure who it was. What's uh, what major are you finishing up, and what classes are you taking right now? Um, I'm a legal studies major. I'm taking senior seminar, civil litigation, uh, juvenile delinquency and criminal procedures right now. So draft day comes in a few weeks. Obviously, you have a lot of things to do in between then and now. I don't have as many things to do, so I'm just going to fast forward ahead to draft day. Where are you going to watch the draft? Are you going to watch the draft? Are you going to follow the draft? Or are you just going to try to avoid it and wait for what's hopefully going to be phone call? Um. Yeah, I don't really like to get into too much, you know, too much hype and you know things like that. I don't. I'm not. I haven't thought about where I'm going to watch it. I'm, I'm not. I'm definitely not going to make a big deal about it. But I'm just going to be waiting. You know, for a phone call to see whatever the next step is. Since this interview, Keith uh, Gono has had the Falcons on campus workout. He's gone to Detroit to meet with the Lions. He'll have visited everyone in the NFC North other than Green Bay. I just don't remember hearing this much buzz about a D3 prospect for years other than Ali Marpet. As D3 folks, though, when a guy gets an NFL chance, the entire division gets behind him and roots him on because he's sort of carrying all of our dreams. And occasionally there are guys like Nicholas Morrow and, and Derek Carrier who burst on the NFL radars seemingly out of nowhere. But in Gono's case, as you heard him describe, 
He has rare athleticism and size for this level, and he seems to have a humble yet not in awe attitude that it takes to make it. So when you read about him, even though the logical comparison is Marpet, he's also more of a Pierre Garçon or Cecil Shorts III in that the ability has always been there. He's always been among you know one of the top 1% of D3 players ability-wise, and it's really just a matter of him landing in the right situation and taking advantage of whatever opportunity he ends up uh, getting. I know I said this on the podcast, but I had to once again just thank him for making time for me on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. In April, um, and uh, I had the uh, unfortunate opportunity to be in Delaware for the funeral of a friend's mom a couple of weeks ago, but I was able to pick up this conversation and the one that's coming up next while I was out there. If you've attended a Franklin and Marshall home football game any time in the last 100 plus years, you've probably done it across the street from where I'm sitting now. Now we're in Shattuck Stadium with Tom Gilberg Field here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I'm talking with John Troxell, the head coach at Franklin and Marshall in this $19 million palace that you guys have built. This is a really impressive facility for Division Three. Yeah, it's a, it's a great facility. It's something that's been a long time coming. And uh, hopefully it's going to help us, you know, with our recruiting. But... More importantly, you know, for our alumni, uh, it's a new home and a new place, and it's going to create a lot of advantages outside of just recruiting, but just in the way we structure our practices. Having lights here makes it incredible. Being on turf finally and not on the grass. Uh, so I uh, can't say thank you enough to our alumni and to our friends of football here that, that made this possible. Were there people who, considering there was a literally 114-year legacy at uh, Spinago Williamson Field across the street, were there people who were resistant to change? You know what, I think there were some guys that would have really enjoyed seeing it stay on that side of the street. Uh, however, the master plan of the college has us developing that land over there. The college wanted that piece of land. Uh, this piece of land was available. It's not far from where we played. It's probably a couple hundred yards. And it creates a whole north campus of athletics that is yet to come. So the college has a lot in store for all of athletics to be on this side of the street in hopefully the next 10 to 12 years. How much hands-on input, how much time does it take you as a football coach managing or being just part of the process of building this stadium? How much of it came from you and how much of it, obviously, the other coaches who were involved and then, of course, the athletic administration and all the people who do the fundraising? Yeah, so, I mean, it obviously it takes a village to build something like this. I mean, there was, a, there was a lot of time. And we started in 2011, you know, putting a stadium committee together, having our alums involved, obviously Larry Shattuck, um, so there was a lot of time. There were many meetings and train trips up to New York City to sit and discuss this. Obviously, you're always trying to build relationships with alums. But to be honest with you, a lot of this happened because of Tom Gilberg, because of the guys that he coached that loved this place, the relationships that he built that, you know, I'll be, ha I'll be blessed if, if my guys love me half as much as they loved him. And it, it is true. And, and they were not going to let this project fail because of the love that they had for him. So... Um, and that's not a knock against the college and how hard they worked, but I just think if they didn't have the experience, we had 430-plus guys give money back to this project, which, and again, that doesn't mean that there weren't other friends and people outside of and from men's lacrosse or women's lacrosse that gave to help make this happen. But, you know, I think in terms of football money, I'm, I'm certain we were over 14, close to $15 million. And for a small college, that's really hard to do. So, um, so I'm really proud to be a part of this. Uh, it had very little to do with me and a lot to do with, you know, 
the guys that came before. And we talk all the time about our program, and our motto is not four years but a lifetime. And we, we believe that. We, we preach it to our kids. And the guys that started that, that wasn't me that started that. That was Tom Gilberg that started that. And those guys gave back, and I'm hoping someday that my guys give back as much as his guys did. We were talking about uh, before we started this, and uh, I was recalling that I remember putting the story on the website about your hiring, and then to go back and realize that that was 12 years ago. It seems like that time has really flown by. It's gone really fast. It's been a blessing here. Uh, we had a lot of work to do, so it makes time fly when you're doing a lot of work and, and trying to get a, uh, this stadium off the ground and built as well as building a program that we can sustain winning. Because when I got here, we weren't a great pro program. We had a lot of history, but we had some down years there. And uh, so we knew we had to, had to build a program. And 12 years later, here we are, and we got to 10-1 and one and finally won a championship. Yeah, and so you guys go into Selection Sunday last year on the bubble. Um, I don't know where you guys felt you were. Uh, I'll ask you about that in a second. Um, or, you know, where we thought you were. We thought you were fairly deep on the bubble. And, of course, as you know, as everybody knows, you guys did not get in, although went on to win a bowl game. But I'm going to backtrack just for a second and say, did you, when you're in a situation like that as a coach and you guys don't make the cut, then do you go back to someone on the committee or kind of seek out other people and say, what did we need to do? What, was, what would have made our resume better? That sort of thing. No, we didn't. I mean, we, we knew we were on the bubble. We knew there were a bunch of things that had to happen going into the last week for us to make the tournament. It's still a goal of ours, and that's one of the things that we're striving to do here. You know, when we set, set out here to build this program, one of them was to become competitive at the national level. And I think we're getting closer and closer, you know, uh, again, winning 10 games, playing a very good Widener team and beating them uh, is a staple for our program. You know, we've beaten DelVal, Widener. Um, you know, we've beaten some good teams. We've beaten Hopkins in the past. You know, and that's the team we're trying to catch in our conference. So for our kids, they know that uh, we still have some work to do, and we're going to keep striving for that goal. What's the difference? What separates you guys from Johns Hopkins other than the – um, the 38 points from last season. Sorry to say that out loud, but I just had to throw that in there. You know, I mean, Jim Margraff's done a tremendous job down there. They get great kids. Uh, they have a program. Their kids believe. You know, and I think we have closed the gap a little bit. Um, you know, but uh, we still have some work to do. You know, when you get lose by 38, that's another reason why you don't make the tournament. You know, if it was a seven-point game, I think people might have looked at us a little different. You know, the nice thing was we were a young team. I mean, we graduated 11 seniors, and we have a lot of kids coming back that are really, really tremendous players. If we stay healthy, we're going to have a chance again this year. Coaches talk about advancing deep into the playoffs or even advancing a couple weeks into the playoffs. Get you an extra week or two weeks of reps for your kids, right? And you guys have now played in uh, bowl games, either ECAC bowl games or Max Centennial bowl games six times in the last nine years. Do you begin to see some of those effects uh, manifest themselves with an extra week of practice? Absolutely, absolutely. You get an extra week. It's an extra week with the kids. Our kids really enjoy it, you know, and they work hard all year to get to that extra game, play for a trophy. And it also, for, in terms of your program, it builds that expectation of going to the postseason. And we want to have that extra week because when we do get to the NCAAs, I don't want it to be something where our kids don't understand uh, how to prepare and, and why we're here. So I think it all goes hand in hand in building the program. How has it been the last couple of years having the Max Centennial framework to work within rather than the ECAC Bowls? Uh, I think it's been comparable. Um, you know, when you look at playing – in the ECAC, we were playing a MAC team anyway. So for us, 
in terms of money and travel and all the things that we talk about reasons not to play the extra game, this makes it a very affordable venture for both conferences, for our presidents to say, hey, our kids deserve the opportunity, and yet it's not going to cost us a lot. And really, uh, our conference has a history that dates back to where the MAC and the Centennial were one conference. So those rivalries, when we played Widener this year, our alumni came back because they could resonate with playing Widener and Billy White Shoes Johnson. And uh, so it was a lot of fun, and it, it created a great environment here on campus. Yeah, you guys have, of course, a bunch of uh, trophies around the stadium here. I was looking at a 1968 MAC championship in football uh, before we started talking. My vision uh, may be a little bit tinged by basketball, but I feel like Lebanon Valley is the big rival for FNM, even though they're not in the same conference right now in basketball. What's it like in football, and what was it like historically? In terms of playing Lebanon Valley? Or who the big rival is that, you know, obviously the wagon wheel would probably answer that question for me, but I'm asking anyway. Um, so in terms of rivalries, you know, if you ask our alumni, Gettysburg's our rival. It's the end of the year. It's the last game. We play for the Lincoln Trophy, uh, which, is, which is a great story if you haven't seen it. But uh, we, it was, there's a, a bullet from the Civil War embedded in the trophy. So there's a lot of history there. If you ask our players, our players would probably tell you our rivals, Johns Hopkins, because that's who we're, we're chasing. If you ask other people, they're going to tell you it's Dickinson. So the nice thing is with, this, with our schedule is there's, there's a lot of rivalry games, and every week means something. You know, for me personally, it was Muhlenberg because I worked for Mike Donnelly. So there was always something with every week that, that really created some sort of uh, special moment within the season. New coaching position at Muhlenberg, relatively recent coaching change at McDaniel, new coach at Gettysburg. So there's going to be you know, some new faces around the Centennial this year. Yeah, there is, and it creates a little bit of change schematically within the league. Uh, it also means that I'm getting to be one of the older guys. You know, when I used to look, when I came into the conference, I looked up to all the, you know, Barry Streeter and Darwin Bro and Tim Keating and Mike Donnelly. So, you know, it's, it's sad to see those guys go because it, it was, our conference is a really special group of coaches, and it always has been where we have a lot of respect for each other. When you sit in a room in a conference meeting with these coaches, there's no animosity, there's, there's no hostility. You know, we're all here for the kids, we're all here for the right reasons. And it's been a lot of fun to be a part of this conference because of the guys that were here. And I think it's gonna be the same with the guys moving forward. You were talking about your team earlier and uh, you know, not a bunch of seniors from last year. You had a handful of guys who were first team all conference, but it sounds like you have a, a bunch of guys coming back. So tell us a little bit about what uh, Franklin and Marshall football looks like for 2018. Yeah, so offensively, you know, we're going to return uh, four offensive linemen up front. And the big piece is we return our quarterback, Tanner Ayersman, who, in my mind, he's the best in the country. You know, I think in the end of the season, you know, he counted for 37 touchdowns last year. He only threw five interceptions, which uh, he had a great year. He was a first-team all-conference kid. He has Kylon Pretty. Uh, KJ had a tremendous year for us last year. I think both of those guys, in the end, if they stay healthy, and repeat their performances from a year ago could be all Americans. Um, when you look at the defensive side of the ball, we return our front seven, uh, which was really, really good. Joe Granahan was the defensive player of the year in the conference. Uh, he had 14 and a half sacks, I believe. And again, he could be an all American as well. Um, we're as fast and as physical at linebacker as we've ever been. We have to replace three or four on the back end in the secondary, which will be the big piece. We return all of our special teams. Uh, and we have to replace Talib Gerald at tailback. If we can come up with a tailback, 
uh, that produces the way he did. Uh, you know, again, I think we're not going to sneak up on anybody. Everybody knows that we have a chance to be pretty good. But I, I really like our team. I like the way our kids are working. And the nice thing is, is they're a great group of kids that, that really have taken into the lessons we're trying to teach, which, you know, it's not always about wins and losses, but when they have those set of core values and they're playing for each other and they're actually, sometimes we don't teach what it is to be a teammate anymore. And that's what we're trying to get them to do is be teammates, love each other. And if you do that, you're going to, you're going to end up winning a lot of games because you're going to play for each other. And so I'm really happy with our team, where we're at. And, uh, but, you know, building a team, you know, they always say, you know, the road's always under construction, you know, and so we're, we're still working at it and, uh, and we're trying to get our kids to, to keep going forward. Keith, the stadium really is quite nice, certainly in contention for the second nicest stadium in Division Three. if there were a, an award you would give out for that. Uh, an audio tour of the stadium would have made much sense, but there was a, a huge alumni area with a great seating for the high rollers, a great locker room and training room space, uh, a really nice-looking video board, et cetera, et cetera. All the amenities that uh, students and alumni look for are there in this stadium. It's a very, very, very fine house. Well, it sounds like for what it costs. It should be pretty nice, but second nicest stadium in D3? Well, I mean, so what are the – let's talk for a second. What are the other candidates? I'm glad you asked. Look, um, first of all, there's second nicest stadium and second nicest place to see a game. And and there's always going to be your St. John's, your Linfield. um, I don't know if if Ithaca maybe falls in that group where it's like – it's not a – the stadiums are not amazing, but the, the, it's just a place where, you know, if you go at the right time of year, especially when it when it's St. John's and the, the leaves are turning and, and they're, um, you know, the students are, are there in full and people are sitting on the on the um, berm. Is that what they call that? Sure. Um, you know, that's an amazing place to see a game. Lin, Linfield, a lot of history there um, and, you know, great views at, you know, Middlebury. People would bring up the, the view of. The mountains, Ithaca, you can see the Finger Lakes if, if you sit in the right area. So, I mean, there are always going to be places that uh, that aren't great stadiums necessarily, but are great places to see a game. Right. Um, then that's like the setting. Yeah. Right. But it's obviously the nicest stadium by far, Mary Harden Baylor. They, right. That's not even a, a discussion anymore. So, yeah, what else is the second nicest stadium? Uh, that's a good question because there are not that many super, um, super new ones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's I was I was I was just kind of comparing it to places that I had been in and I've not been in all of them. And I've certainly not been in all of them on game day. But uh, they did that. All I'm what I'm trying to say is they did a really nice job with the stadium. And they talked about some of the other things that are going to go in and around it. They're moving most of athletics essentially across that street in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, so mm-hmm. that there will be more of an athletic complex around there, and they've really kind of expanded the footprint of the college in that aspect. Yeah, if anything, that reminds me of, I guess, what RPI did, where they took their they had an old historical field yeah. and uh, and basically built a new athletic complex. Yeah, um, I guess second nicest stadium, you know, Cortland State was was uh, stadium wise was was up there. Uh, I, I, you know, as much as it pains me to say this, I like Hampton, Sydney. I think they have a, a, a good, but that's also kind of half atmosphere, more, maybe more atmosphere than stadium. Um, you know, same thing with the new, I like all the stadiums that are surrounded by buildings. And th- this is a conversation we've had yeah. maybe on the podcast, but that's like Carnegie Mellon, um, Case Western Reserve, Randolph-Macon is now in that group. Um, there, there's got to be a couple other ones, but when they're just sort of like, you know, you got people on a balcony, 
whatever, enjoying a drink, and they could see the game from from their their dorm room or whatever. I always found that cool. Well, we'll take nominations for second nicest stadium. We won't take nominations for nicest stadium, but uh, we'll take nominations for second nicest. Uh, tweet at us. Uh, use the D3FB hashtag. And uh, we'll be glad to have that conversation with you. Share pictures, especially. Share video of game day. Uh, now I'm just throwing stuff out there. Do things. It's April. We like football. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Rob Cushman, head coach at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California, where coach, uh, well, first of all, thanks for joining us on the podcast, but secondly, it has to have been a real eventful eight months since you took over this job. Um, it is unlike anything uh, that um, obviously I've ever done or even could have been extremely stressful, difficult, um, challenging to say the least, but but. You know, sometimes from adversity comes your greatest successes and and the reward, and and we're we're hoping that's the way this thing all ends. And for those who somehow are jumping into the Occidental story unaware, basically, you got this job, um, gosh, just a couple of weeks before training camp started, inherited a roster of somewhere in the high 30s, maybe low 40s, then had uh, a bunch of key injuries in the first couple of games and ended up playing only three games last season. Is that pretty much the, the thumbnail yeah, sketch? That's a good, yeah, that's a good summary. I, um, you know, this thing all happened late. The, the previous coach resigned at the end of July, and and by the time I kind of found out about it and talked to them and, and they got me out here for an interview, it was really just days before the season started. I got here five, actually took the position and then arrived on campus five days before the start of practice. So not much time to do anything other than try to put a staff together and and see where we were talent-wise. And it became very obvious that we were going to be in, in some trouble just from a number standpoint. Um, they had some retention issues before and recruiting class wasn't the strongest. And, and uh, some of this I knew, some I didn't know. Uh, some guys left, you know, when the other coach resigned, and I wasn't aware of that. And so, yeah, we found ourselves in the mid-40s, and which is doable. I mean, I've, I've coached small rosters before, but yes. we had like six quarterbacks and a kicker. And so the reality is we just didn't have enough linemen on either side of the ball. And when, and when they were injured and we had problems, we just, we just couldn't safely compete. And that was most difficult decision I've ever had to be part of. Run the gamut of emotions between parents, players, alums, administration students. It was uh, pretty volatile for a while, and really, uh, I'm not sure it's totally settled down. But we've we've had to navigate in this course and try to get ourselves back on track, and that's what we're currently doing. Uh, just a note for our listeners. Uh... Coach Cushman is joining us uh, via my cell phone, so you may not uh, you may hear some dropouts, and I apologize for the audio quality. But I believe that as I'm hearing it, uh, I'm I'm able to make sense of everything that Coach Cushman is saying, and so hopefully uh, on the listeners end, this will uh, work for you guys out there uh, listening to the podcast as well. So you joined a situation, as you said, which is not completely dissimilar. I mean, you and I talked 
several times when uh, you were at Minnesota Morris, uh, when, when I was writing about the UMAC for kickoff, and it was not all that different in terms of the couple of years that you were no, there. No, that, 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 very, very true. When I took over at, at Morris, it was obviously earlier, it was in April, end of March and April 2015, and they only had like 29 returners, and we got scrambled to get a roster in the mid-40s. But we competed. We had enough depth at the right positions, I guess, was the key, you know? And, I mean, uh, we had enough linemen to compete, and we had actually pretty good skill. And we were able to compete that first year with a, and finish four and six. And, and then brought almost all those guys back the following year. And, and I think, I don't know, 46, 48 guys. And we went six and four, and we're five and oh at home. I mean, we did some really good things. I was really proud of that. But we just kind of had the right makeup. It isn't just total numbers all the time. It's having the right numbers. And yeah. that's kind of what we found ourselves faced with here. And we just didn't have the numbers in the right position. All right. So what does, I guess the big question is, what does retention look like from the guys that you had on campus? And then what does the incoming recruiting class look like for this upcoming fall? That is the million-dollar question. And we've been battling that for, as I said, for weeks, months. We think we have about between 24 and 27 guys coming back. You know, there's some there's still some uncertainty with guys, whether or not this really does happen and we can pull it off. And there's a lot of, you know, um, not ill will, but just uh, disappointment. And, and, you know, do you want to try to go through this again? Uh, I'm trying to, you know, have guys realize both players and families and alums that we're going to do this the right way. We're going to build a program. It's just, it's just you know, we're in the, in the very beginning of this rebuild. So trying to convince as many guys to stay as possible. Now, maybe having a couple guys that didn't play last year come out. We've been working hard to try to turn over every stone to, to get our roster. So let's just use the number 25 um, as our you know, as a reaching number. In terms of recruiting now, it's been difficult. As you know, I keep using that word, but it's been very interesting, to say the least, to recruit to a team that didn't play. Um, you can imagine what our opponents are doing and our fellow competitors are, you know, putting doubt in recruit signs of the program. Um, we don't have, you know, really anything to hang our hat on. It's play and it was a national story there's just been a variety of of uh, problems or you know different situations to deal with and so in order to get guys to buy in and believe that we're going forward to have them feel like they're going to be part of the solution part of the fix part of the foundation has been our message they get a world-class education here in cities in the world uh, we've got a lot of great tradition here. We just, you know, just find ourselves in a, a place. We're trying to sell the future and try to sell that that dream. Not unlike any programs, but different circumstances. So that being said, we had 18 uh, recruits commit to the early decision process, which is huge. That's something they haven't done before. For people to get 18 back into what we're doing. Uh, the regular decision was just a few weeks ago, and we're trying to finish those positive guys on board. 
think we have about 23 or 24 on board, probably 15 to 20 still out there that we're working on really hard to convince um, again without, you know, a lot, a lot to go on. I, I, I tell them they got to have faith without proof, you know, and I, that's, that's not always easy for families and parents, especially. Coach, you talked about re-recruiting some of the players who are already on campus. I know you also have to do a, a lot of work to re-recruit some of the alumni who have fallen away. And I know that the 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 college wants you guys to raise, uh, let's see, $285,000 for this year and uh, more than a million dollars in committed gifts over the course of four years. And I know that that deadline is coming up. How is that uh, process going for you guys? You know, it's been remarkable. I, I the, the amount of money we've raised at the small college level is, I'm not sure it's unprecedented, but it's, it's pretty impressive. And we had about a eight-week window to raise that 285. Um, they're getting very close. They've done a remarkable job. We have an alumni action team kind of pulled together and has reached out to a as many alums as we can. We've had a, we had an alumni social meet and greet. We've, we've done a variety of things to try to get them back on board. Uh, they they felt very marginalized, alienated. They were disgruntled mm-hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons. I think the casting of the program just brought it all to a head. I mean, it, it, you know, there's historical issues I won't get into, but the, they, they had flipped away for years, and then this was kind of the final nail in the coffin. So we worked extremely hard with a key group of leaders from the alumni group to try to get this thing back on track, and they've done, a re- again, a remarkable job. Almost 285000 and we're getting very close in you know a two-month period. And then, you know, the four-year commitment's a little more difficult, but we're making real games in that direction too so i can't say enough vance mueller former player who played in the nfl has kind of spearheaded that a variety of guys that want this to be want occidental football to, to 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 be solid to be stable you know we may not be national champions but have a program that everybody can be proud of and compete on a weekly basis and come back and watch and support and and then create our next group of alums, you know, that go through the program, feel good about it. So it's it's been very, very interesting. You know, they've pulled on every possible uh, avenue that, that they can. Um, you know, famous alum Jim Mora, NFL head coach, came back to the alumni group event, and he's on board. I mean, there's just it, to see this community come together has been really special. You know, I want to do this for a lot of reasons. But that group is a large part of it. Being given, did you say eight weeks to raise two hundred eighty-five thousand dollars and get yeah. pledges for one point one four million? Yeah, how about that? That seems. I mean, I haven't done a ton of fundraising, uh, <laughs> and certainly not at that level. But that seems like a really tall order for you guys. Uh, well, again, I think it might be unprecedented. I, I don't know nationally, you know, in terms of what other programs have done and. We're a little bit we're a little bit more concerned about the four year goal that one million plus, but but the two hundred eighty five we're getting very close to, and of course our deadline is limiting this week. So I I think though if we're if we're close, I mean I can't speak for the administration and the board, but I think if we're close, they need all the effort and 
resources have been collected. Uh, I, I just feel really good about what they've done and how they've done it. Hopefully everybody else does too. Bottom line, what do you think the chances are that Occidental Field's a full season so, this year? I knew you were going to ask me that. And trust me, I've been asked this a lot in the last several weeks. Um, I think, you know, with our 25 returning and hopefully 30 newcomers, you know, our goal was 40. It's just we just aren't going to probably get there. To answer your question, uh, I feel like we're going to play. We're going to be thin again. But we do have six offensive linemen committed that, that, I, that we really like. And that was a huge area. Our skill level numbers is down a little bit. Um, but I, I think I think at the end of the day, we're going to be right right on the edge, both in the fundraising and the roster size. But if we can just get on the field and compete and finish, um, obviously it's going to be a difficult year in some ways. But we, I do like our young talent coming a lot. But there's some guys out in this last week. I mean, it's coming down right to the 12th hour. And there's some guys out there that if we can secure, that's going to really help us. But if people ask me if we're going to play, I say, yeah, we're going to play. And that's what we've told recruits. And I got to believe that. And I guess next, uh, next Monday, I guess I'll know for sure. The fundraising deadline is Sunday, April 22nd, and you heard Rob Cushman talk about knowing on Monday, that's April 23rd, for those of you who might be tuning in later. Uh, Cushman alluded to this late in the interview, but uh, the turning point for this program in many ways, including with its alumni base, was when the college sacked Dale Weedoff in May of 2012. His teams had won 41 games in the last six years of his tenure, and those weren't even the best six years. Uh, They've only won 18 games in the six years since. I thought the contrast of Franklin and Marshall being able to lean on its alumni base for millions of dollars and Occidental needing to tap into an alumni base to save the program really highlights the role of guys who have played previously in any team's current success. So when John Trostel says it's not four years, it's for life, it really is. You know, some of my best friends to this day are guys that I play with. And it's interesting that a program's best friends are also guys who have played in that program. Indeed. I was struck when Troxel said they'd had more than 400 alumni donate to their project. Occidental, as of April 19th, reported that it had 173 donors support their cause and that the 2018 goal is 87% funded. If you want to support that, by the way, Google support Oxy Football. That's the easiest way to get there. Uh, I feel confident that Occidental would be able to field a team this year. I guess I'm just not quite as confident that the administration will actually support that effort. I have to admit, I fear the college is trying to end the program. Objectively speaking, football comes with the greatest risk of injury, it unbalances your Title IX numbers, and it costs a lot of money. So those are the downsides. But nothing connects alumni to the college like a good football program, and there's no life experience similar to having played or coached American football. And anyone who's been in or around a program uh, like you and I have uh, can vouch for that. For a college on Occidental's level, maybe a Johns Hopkins is a a model to follow where you can be academically significant and football doesn't have to be the jewel of campus or the athletic program even, but it can be a viable, vibrant part of college life and uh, the Occidental alumni are showing why it's worth keeping. You have to salute the effort Coach Cushman is making, even if you can hear the uncertainty in his voice and even if they're in some of the most fertile recruiting territory in the country. It's tough already to get players in. Uh, on board at academically elite schools to begin with, and then you add this uncertainty, and all there is really to sell is playing time and hope. 
Now is the time on our podcast where we dive into the Twitter mailbag. Now is the time on Sprockets where we dance. Even though we're in the offseason, we know you still have questions, so we'll throw out a reminder to hit us up on Twitter when it's getting to be time for Keith and I to step into the studio. And a Twitter question this month comes from Michael Mangone at 90 East Design, asking, do you guys see any other school or schools jumping ship to join the NAIA? Implications for the NCAA going forward? Keith, man, I feel like this is um, I feel like this is an isolated incident. Obviously, there have been a couple of schools also that have gone from NCAA to NAIA, but they're not football programs. Um, I just feel like this is a, an unusual situation where it seems like Thomas More doesn't have too many other choices. Yeah, Pat, we, we've been doing this long enough where we remember when full conferences were coming from NAIA yeah. to NCAA. Yeah. Um, because a lot of the small schools were, were at some point along the line were NAIA schools. The, the bottom line is, and, and really it is about the bottom line, is you know, the NCAA, for all the issues that it has and, and, and folks have with the, with the way they treat the, the Power 5 schools, for Division three, it's actually a pretty good deal in terms of that, that money, even though there's not a whole lot of it. Uh, enough of it trickles down to where it, you know, Things like not having to, you know, pay to travel in the playoffs um, and, and just some of the stability that it provides, I think, actually for a small college, uh, the NCAA is is generally a safer bet. So I imagine we're, we're in a pretty stable state right now in D3. Um, you know, schools are still adding football, even though the sport of football is uh, in question uh, the future of it uh, at some places, at some levels. But I think uh, right now, uh, Division Three is a pretty stable place for a small college to be. And don't forget to send us a Twitter question for the podcast. Hit us up at, at D3Football. Keep an eye out for when we're ready to step in the studio to talk about May. Uh, this is the last shot that we got. All right? We're going to run the picket fence at I can remember years ago when like Dumb and Dumber would be on every you know trip, and you got you know you can quote that, and that was getting quoted every week. This past season, there was a lot of Star Wars uh, that went across our screen, and I think that doesn't poorly characterize us. Reservoir Dogs, group of anonymous guys that come together and create a special event, and, and they become close. And, Hoosiers, my four guys are on the floor. If we could run the picket fence, we would, trust me. Now, boys, don't get caught watching the paint dry. Listeners to the podcast probably remember over the course of the last couple months, we've been talking with coaches and our interview subjects about what movies they would compare their teams to. We did that this month as well. We just pulled them all out, and uh, we're going to run them here uh, one at a time, you'll hear from Matthew Gono and then John Troxell and Rob Cushman. I'd probably say the Avengers, just because coming in freshman year, there was a lot of like uh, big pieces here um, at school. A lot of a lot of great football players. I was hearing a lot, you know, a lot of stories, a lot of great things about them. Um, we had Joe, Joe Callahan, um, Sustin. Um, he was a linebacker here. Peyton Rose. So there's a lot of big pieces. So I guess I compare them to you know like heroes or people, you know, you would, you were come. I was coming in, you know, striving to be, you know, striving to beat them in competition. So I guess the Avengers. So I would compare our team uh, to the movie Hoosiers. 
we don't have a large roster. We had 75 kids, seven coaches, and to win 10 games with a, with a small group is hard to do. And if you asked our kids right now, they, they always hear me say uh, a line from that movie, which was, don't get caught watching the paint dry, you know, when Jimmy Chitwood's getting ready to shoot a shot. So, uh, you know, but I, I do. I think our team is striving to, you know, as a, as a smaller college and as a smaller team, trying to compete with some of the big boys. That's what we're, we're hoping to do. We're hoping to get there, and we're hoping to become a national power. See, I think people are going to come into your stadium and do the, uh, the tape measure thing and say, this is exact same dimensions as our, uh, as our gym back in Hickory. And we had to do that with our kids. Let's not change, you know, it's, it's no different than where we were or what we built. Uh, it looks a little prettier, but, um, but it is. It's the same for us, and uh, this is our new home, and we're going to, you know, we're going to keep going and so far undefeated in here. Uh, Hoosiers. My four guys are on the floor. We're going to play this uh, shorthanded and we're going to compete and learn how to do it the right way and ultimately overcome the odds. And, and, and you know, we feel like we can be a conference champion here down the road. So that's that's what it's all about is, is dealing with adversity. And as I said in the beginning, you know, some of your greatest success has come on the, on the, you know, in the aftermath of a, of a very difficult time. So we're trying to do that for sure. I feel like you could have put those three movies. You could have given to the, given them to me blank and then just said, match the, the person with the movie because uh, generationally, you know, the, the, the two older guys picked Hoosiers, which believe it or not is a movie I've never seen. I th- I guess wow. Uh, I was more of a basketball guy, and my school was definitely a basketball school, and that came out at just the right time. Where you know I was a I was a guy in high school. Our basketball team was trying to beat the odds, et cetera, et cetera. It was a huge movie for me. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I've never seen uh, Field of Dreams either, but it's like Hoosiers and Field of Dreams. If you work in sports or you've been around sports long enough, you basically know the plot of the movie. So you would only be watching it, I think, for, for just reference. Wow. I guess conversely, if I were admitting things I haven't seen, remember the Titans. Oh, killing me, Petey. <laughs> I, I, I get it. I understand. Uh, I also haven't seen Sandlot, but I could certainly throw down uh, Sandlot references like everybody else. Yeah, remember the Titans. is good. I, I like that movie. But I get that. I think, I think that just came out at a time we had small children and not a lot of babysitter money. It's funny because I have no frame of reference for like any sitcom from 94 to 98, which is when I was in college because we didn't have time, I guess, in college to sit around and watch TV. Um, so like, I, like I'd never seen Frasier. Wow. Or Friends? Friends started, but Friends extended beyond that. Yeah, and I think it was in syndication longer than Frasier. I mean, I've seen a couple episodes of Frasier, but like if you made a, you made a, I know that, like I know his brother's name, Niles, and I know they had a Jack Russell Terrier, but like that's all I know. <laughs> Uh, you pretty much have the plot. There's a uh, there's a there's a psychic there's a psychic English lady that you've missed out on, and that's the uh, that's the plot that everything revolves around. But that's okay. Niles and Daphne will get together in the end. Spoiler alert! Now you don't have to watch it at all. Boom! Don't tell Ross and Rachel though. <laughs> they were on a break last I heard. I heard that's on Netflix, by the way. Like people go back and watch Friends, which I, I can't imagine ever doing. My. 12-year-old watched the entirety of Friends last summer. And oh, oh my go. god, I I'm not we're totally off the the uh the podcast track now, but literally one night last summer, she burst out of her room screaming, shouting, "She got off the plane!" I got off the plane. 
you get to the end of the podcast, there should be some something in it for you, some reward, something to laugh at and take you out. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Take you out into the uh, into the next week or you know whatever you're in going into next. So uh, that's why we get a little goofy at the end. That's why I was already playing the every thought of yours music underneath this. I don't have any other extra thoughts though. This has been a, a really newsy month, and we got all of that stuff in at the top of the podcast. Yeah, as we should have. And this was the Around the Nation podcast number 194, released on April 20th, 2018. Thanks for listening and tune in to the rest of our coverage throughout the offseason. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts. Hey, we have uh, 30 five-star reviews and one four-star review. I'm very happy about that four-star review. Feel free to uh, go revise that if you like. Uh, I think we've done pretty well. Uh, anyway, that's what helps other football fans find us. You can leave comments here on the blog page. You can tweet at us. Do all sorts of things. Executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Thank you to our guests, Matthew Gono, John Troxell, Rob Cushman, as well as sports information directors Cyril Parham, Mickey Blymere, and Michael Wells for their time on this edition of our show. And of course, thank you to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. I bet you didn't know that because you can join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com and also you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. We're still in the offseason here in Division Three football, still for another three months, but there is new content on D3Football.com on a regular basis. We'll continue to follow those coaching changes. We're going to have a lot of coverage about uh, pro prospects here over the course of the next week or so. Look for a piece from Adam Turr talking to some of the top prospects as well. And you can find another new podcast in this feed from us each month, like next month, and the month after that, and then another month after that, and then another month, and then weeks, many weeks, lots of weeks. Um, something James said in the, in the huddle. He said, um, you know, that maybe there's never been a, a high profile or as high a profile transfer as this. And I was, you know, I think he's probably kind of right. I mean, there, I'm sure there must have been a person that's gone from St. John's to St. Thomas or, um, you know, Williams to Amherst or something. I mean, if we go uh, we go way, way back and the guy who the St. Thomas Stadium is named after, whatever O'Shaughnessy's first name is, is a guy who transferred from St. John's to St. Thomas. There's that and there's uh, the actual uh, the Eve, right? <laughs> what is the little <laughs> Jeff? <laughs> oh, right. The entirety of Amherst is a transfer from Williams. Yeah, I mean that's like the that's the biggest transfer since then. <laughs> a transfer of like the uh, entire contents of the library and still the books, yeah. A, a quarter of the faculty or something like that. Well, yep. if they start calling Luke Porman the defector, then uh, the folks at uh, uh, Amherst or Williams, I'm not sure which one would want to claim that, are going to have some words to say.